This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is sponsored by GE Forge and Tool. This podcast is brought to you by GE Forge and Tool. Forged from proprietary steel alloy, GE's tools are made to withstand the rigorous everyday work of professional farriers. GE professionals make their tools to ensure precision consistency day after day. Learn more at geforge.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. As a farrier educator and clinician, Chris Gregory has made a tremendous impact on improving this industry. He's prepared students for careers in foot care and has traveled the world holding clinics and certifications. In this episode, he talks about his life, his family's farrier school, and some important points on client management. And I think there are some important takeaways in this, especially if you are struggling with dealing with those tough clients. I grew up on a ranch in New Mexico and uh, was rodeoing through high school. I went to college on a rodeo scholarship, and I'd done a little shoeing on the ranch, nothing correct, just uh, get metal on feet. When I went to college, my bulldog and horse kept losing the shoe. Guy was He got $25 to shoe one, he got $5 to nail the shoe back on, and it was happening like three times a week. I was like, well, you know, I can do it that good. So I started doing my horse, and pretty soon I started doing my buddy's horses. And then uh, within just a few months, I had this whole business. So I decided to go to horseshoe in school. I went to two weeks at one of the worst schools on the planet. But it, it made me feel like I knew more than I did, which, you know, back, this was 1987, and really all you needed to have was confidence. You didn't really have to have any skills. So I, I had confidence after that two weeks that I could go start a business. Because I, I saw what the school was teaching, and I thought, well, man, that's nothing. So I hung out a shingle and made the switch pretty much from rodeo to horseshoeing. Horseshoeing competitions replaced rodeo for me. And my sophomore year of college, I, I mainly went to the rodeos to uh, shoe horses instead of bulldog. <laughs> Quickly made, so, made some money at that. Yeah, I was getting $23 a horse for shoes, uh, 18 for reset, and 12 for trims. And uh, my rent was 125 a month. And for for a 1987 rodeo cowboy, I was rolling in it. It was yeah. it was pretty amazing money for that time. My wife and I got married in '88. We had five years total of college. Um, graduated in 1991 with twelve thousand dollars cash and no debt. Yeah, that that doesn't happen anymore. Well, I mean, it still can. I mean, if if, if you're a young guy and wants to go to college, what better job could you have? You said it by your schedule. You you get paid very well for the number of hours you work. You're mobile, and uh, yeah, I think if you're a youngster, 18 years old, and you're saying, man, I should take a year off to learn a trade or something before I go to college, horseshoe would be ideal. Right, right. Well, let's, you know, you and I have talked a lot over the years about confidence, and and I know we're going to talk a lot about education and your role in that, but go back to those early days, uh, kind of those mid to late 80s, and confidence and surviving. You know, now you're, you're saying you're, you know, your skill set wasn't necessarily there, but the, the confidence was, you know, do you see that a lot with students and graduates? Well, the difference now is you can see good work pretty easily uh, on your on your phone or your computer in just a matter of seconds. Back then, it, depending on the area you were in, you were seeing some pretty rough horseshoeing. And if yours was better than that, then you were better than the other guy, you know. And, and, and then you go to a contest. I'll never forget. I went to a contest, watched Jim Poor build heels. And I was just, I was just floored. I was like, wow, because I was building handmaids and cutting the heels off with a V Hardy, which was a common way of doing it. 
and he was forging heels that were on shoes the right size for the foot. It was it was like, man, this is this this is amazing. And so your your learning curve was different. It was a lot more expensive and your your moments with people that were at a higher level were incredibly valuable because they weren't available uh when you were sitting, you know, in your in your uh, office chair or, or lazy boy with your computer. So it's a very, very different world. Yeah. So well, where were you at, at the time in the late 80s? Um, I was in Iola, Kansas. Uh, I was rodeoing for Allen County Community College, which was a junior college. Um, I was going to go take a rodeo scholarship to Fort Hayes State. And we went out there, and the horse population was not that dense. And I also, by then, rodeo was kind of like really kind of a backseat for my desire. So I took a military scholarship, an army scholarship to Pittsburgh State University. Kelly and I ended up in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Really good horse population. It's only about 40 miles from where we are now. And that's where I finished up college. So that was, I got done there at 91, went and served uh, in Virginia with the army for a little while, opened another business out there and ended up starting a school in Colorado in 92, 10 days after Cody was born. So going back to those days of, of when shoeing became more of your life than rodeo and, and competitions, who were some of the names of the people who made that impression on you to really open your eyes? You mentioned Jim Poor. Who are some of the others? Well, the three big influences in my career um, were Danny Ward, uh, Jim Keith, and Bob Marshall. So Danny Ward, when I was stationed in Virginia, he told me to come by and see him. And I, I'm sure he probably regretted that because I spent a lot of time at his shop. Kelly was seven months pregnant and we lived in a tent outside the shop for five weeks while I worked for him, you know. So I'm, I, I know that uh, I outdid my welcome with Danny, but he was one of the most uh, generous and gracious men I ever knew. So he had a big impact. When I went to Colorado and opened that school, I'd go down and see Jim Keith every chance I got. And, and Jim Keith is, is one of those talents that is, is a very rare, he, he's such a, such a rare, artistic, talented, knowledgeable, intelligent man. It, it, just spending a few minutes with Jim is, uh, is equivalent to hours with, you know, other teachers. He was, he was incredible. But then Bob Marshall was able to teach me the mechanics of using an anvil properly. So then it didn't matter about your strength or it didn't matter about your power. It really only mattered if you understood the mechanics of using the horn properly, which made shoe building way easier and shaping way easier. And uh, it, it's, it's, you know, it's allowed Cody to learn some things whenever he was too small to have power where he was building shoes that, uh, you know, he's building roadsters whenever he was a preteen that you wouldn't have believed because he, he, it wasn't about power. It was just about understanding how to use that. Use the mechanics of the horn. So those were the three big influences. But I go to a contest and I see somebody like Jim Poor uh, do something, uh, and it would just, you know, I'd, um, another one would be Dean. Uh, oh man, what's Dean's last name? Uh, Dean, Pearson. Dean Pearson. Yeah, Dean Pearson um, got to got to see him at a clinic one time, and just he just he showed me so many things that I hadn't seen before. Uh, Edward Martin, I got to see him in the late 80s in uh, Colorado at the Four Corners Contest. Um, the man was, was dump welding with no flux, you know, back whenever we didn't, we didn't hardly, we weren't even hardly able to weld at all with flux. So, so clinics are really how I learned to do it at a higher level. But I had those three mentors that I mentioned that were, were key in that. 
Okay. So then opening the school, uh, talk a little bit about that, those days and, and uh, you know, what, what inspired you to, to get more into the education side early? Um, well, I got done with my, my bachelor's degrees in uh, 1991, I, and I was commissioned in the, uh, in the reserve, so I was a second lieutenant. And I had a year to kill between graduating from um, undergrad school and reporting to active duty. So I was interested in maybe learn how to fly, which uh, I've now learned how to do. But back then, the guy who had um, flight lessons was the head of the HRD and the voc- vocational education department at the college. And I went to see him. He said, well, why don't you get your master's degree? And I said, well, I only have a year. He said, well, we can make that work. Uh, my GPA was good enough, and he was able to, to make the ca- classes work for me. So instead of becoming a pilot, I got a, a master's degree in human resource development, which is pretty much vocational education with an industrial name. So while I was getting that degree, I thought, you know, this is teaching the trade. I could teach horseshoeing, and I really love the trade, and I, I thought I'd really like to be a, an educator. So I wrote 20 letters, 22 letters actually on my typewriter to different schools and colleges out in Colorado where my, my wife was interested in going to live. And I didn't really care. I just wanted to go open a school. And one of the responses was from the Colorado School of Trade, which was a gunsmith school. And the response was basically, hey, that sounds uh, great to have a horseshoe in school. What does a horseshoe do? And <laughs> so that's, that's, that's how it happened. And uh, I moved to, after we got done in Virginia, moved all the way up to Colorado. We had everything we owned in the back of a two-horse trailer and truck with a horse as well. So <laughs> we didn't have a whole lot, but we uh, we went out to Colorado and opened that first school, um, ran it for someone else, which was, which was what a golden opportunity because I got to kind of make my mistakes and learn how the game was played on someone else's nickel. Right. And, and, and not just in the established school, but actually, you know, at the, on the ground up. Um, three years later, I really needed to be my own boss. I needed to have my own school, and we moved to Missouri and uh, opened Heartland. Officially, it opened in '95. Okay. Um, but when I left Colorado in '94, I was making eleven thousand a month with, with part-time shoeing and running the schools. I was really making good money in 1994. So in right. July of '94, I made eleven grand. In September of '94, my first month in uh, Missouri, I made forty-five dollars. <laughs> so it was, a, you know, two little kids and a wife looking at me like, you know, babe, I believe in you. I don't know why, but I, I do. So let's make this work. And it was, it was pretty, pretty tough. We were, we were, we were really broke. We were so broke we couldn't even pay attention. <laughs> well, let me, let me take you back. You said something about uh, being in Colorado and being able to make some of those mistakes early on. What, what were some of those, those things that you learned early on and, you know, that, that helped you prepare for Heartland? Well, for instance, whenever you, whenever you start a business, a customer has an issue come up and how you deal with it becomes your policy. So if a guy calls you a horseshoer at four o'clock on Friday afternoon and says, Hey, come shoot my horse. We'll go to the rodeo and you go do it. Well, forevermore, that customer is going to treat you like that. So I would have a student, and uh, let's say I have a student that doesn't want to work, and I'm like, oh, well, that's okay. You sit on the tailgate. Well, I've, I've established policy. First of all, if you think of the job of the owner of a trade school, it is a really, really unusual social situation because the students are my employers. I am their employee. I work for them. 
yet I also have to be their boss. So it's a, it's a dynamic that is very, very unusual. And if you look at it from a psychological perspective, it's a, it's a strange situation, right? Mm-hmm. Which is different than public school. You know, public school, they're not getting paid by the student. They're getting paid by the state or, you know, university, stuff like that. But if you are the owner of a trade school, you are the employee of the person that comes to that trade school, which is very, very different. So I have to take students out, put them under 1,000-pound animals that may not want them to be there, students that may not have any horse experience or any knowledge, and keep them from getting killed without hurting the horses and teach them a trade in the process. And, and learning how to do that in an area where I wasn't going to live the rest of my life was was – was wonderful you know i didn't uh, any mistakes i made they didn't have to live with me when i came to heartland i was able to to revamp and i understood a lot more about the process yeah. plus i also understood a little bit more about the the uh, paperwork side of running a school you know running a school is horrible as far as the gi bill and vocational rehabilitation rehabilitation coordinating board for higher education accrediting bodies uh immigration there's 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 a whole side of it that we have to do behind the scenes and the paperwork part of things that uh, horseshoers would never dream of, and it sucks. It's 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 horrible. I don't I don't enjoy working with those bureaucracies at all. Yeah, I gotta imagine there's a lot of a lot of paper, a lot of like you said, bureaucracy, and and you know uh, trying to overcome all of that just to to do what you love. Yes, yeah. and and luckily I got to see some of that in Colorado. Um, I was able to, you know, he, the, the owner of the school was gracious enough to say, all right, listen, whenever, whenever you're going to do this, you've got to make sure that the state knows about this and you got to call this person. And so, so he did lay some groundwork, uh, for me and, and we left on good terms. Um, I just, I just need to be my own boss. I've, I've always been that way, I think. Yeah. And so there you are one month in. 45 bucks in your pocket. Um, you know, uh, you know, how did you transition that? What I, I gotta imagine that, you know, you're a confident guy, but at, at a time you're, you know, you're talking Kelly's with you, but time did you question yourself of, did I do the right thing? Well, you know, I, I, you never, if, if you're young and, uh, you're going to start a business, you don't let that thought enter your head because, uh, uh, that's the first thought to, well, maybe this ain't going to work. So, um, I, I left a really, really nice business in Colorado and I gave most of that business to one of my graduates with the deal being that I would fly back every six weeks. I kept 33 horses. I think it was on my books. Um, he would pick me up. I would stay with him. I would use his rig. He had worked for me. He had provided shoes, nails and, and everything. But he also, I gave him 250 horses, you know, so it was, uh, it was a, a great deal for both of us. But I would go back every, every six weeks and make 2500 or $3,000. That was what mm. kept us alive here until we were finally able to turn the corner. What, what sort of horses were you doing back there? I had a, a few customers that were in the vendor, uh, equestrian types. Um, and then I had a few customers that I really liked that were, you know, kind of a wealthy, customer with five acres and two horses they trail ride or maybe rope you know just so i I just kept the the nicest horses with the best customers and uh um i had one guy owned a gold mine and uh his name was mark and i'd go do his four horses and and he used to use them to go out and look at elk so you know i just i just i i didn't really care about the discipline i just wanted nice nice horses with good customers 
Okay. You know, you just mentioned that you don't let that thought enter your head when you're starting a business. And I'm, I have to imagine that's the advice you give to your graduates is not, you know, to forge ahead and not have that self doubt. Oh yeah. 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 Well, and when you're married, if, if uh, divorce is not on the table, then it's not on the table and, and it, then it just, you know, you, you, you make it work. So if you start a business, if failure is not an option, then it's not an option. So if that's not an option, what are you going to do? Well, you, you better figure out a way not to fail, right? And so um, there's a big part of this that is mental that, uh, uh, unfortunately, um, some people aren't taught that. And so when we try to teach them that, sometimes it's a little bit too little too late, but uh, you do what you can. You know, you, you do what you can. Yeah. Have you seen Farrier education change much from, from right there in the mid-'90s when you opened your school? Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, um, the students are coming with a little bit more. I, I don't know if knowledge is the right word, but they have more exposure. I guess they've seen more. You know, they've watched YouTube videos, or they've uh, uh, they know more of the terminology and that sort of stuff. Um, but the student body has changed. Um, we're getting kids now that that grew up in a situation where everybody gets a trophy, mm-hmm. and man, that's a that's a that's a hard student because they expect to graduate whether they do the work or not. And when they, when they don't graduate, you, you really feel sorry for them. But, um, we don't have the kind of school that you can cram for in the last four weeks to make up for the, for the weeks that you didn't pay attention. And so if you're, if you're behind at the end of week one, you're, you gotta work really hard to catch up. And, uh, some of these kids, first time they leave the house, they're 18 years old. They, um, they always got a trophy, and mm-hmm. here they are in the heartland, and it's a, it's a rude awakening. So that's been that's been quite a change in just the, the personality of the student. Okay, so I know there's some people listening. They they either have or or will take on on people to mentor apprentices, helpers, whatever you want to call them, uh, and they're going to be of that generation. What advice do you have for for reaching that that younger person who, as you said, get you know always would get the trophy. You know, I, I, I try to build them up as much as I can verbally, but I don't change the, the physical part of it. So I, I try to keep them in the game. I try to get them through the tears. I try to, I try to make them understand that what they're going through has a, a end result that is really worth the, worth the, the work and the effort. We just had a class last week that ended and there were two young kids in there that, four weeks into it is when they decided that, yeah, I can do this. Yeah, I'm going to do this. And, and the changes they made in the last four weeks were incredible, but it took me the first four weeks to get them in a position to start making the changes they made in the last four. So all you can do is just keep talking to them and trying to get them through it to the point where they get enough skill that they have the drive to get through the rest of it on their own. I guess that would be my advice. You, uh, you, you do your best to coach them verbally, but still make them do the work physically. Don't do the work for them. Now, because of of YouTube and other resources, they're seeing a lot of, you know, for uh, information on foot care. Uh, what do you see in terms of their experience with horses? Um, it's, it's always been a mixed bag. Uh, for my whole career, I've uh, been teaching for 27 years, and I have had 
you know, pretty much every situation from from a lady walking out of the secretarial pool, never touching a horse, to the guy that's been shooting for thirty years decides to go get his journeyman and come to here on his way. So, so it's 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 that has always been a mixed bag. So horsemanship can be a really dangerous part of running a school. Yeah, I have to imagine it's especially those who don't have that experience. They're either they're either overly cautious and the the horse feels that, or they're they're reckless. Um, yep. Yeah. How do you, how do you uh, handle that? The, you recognize which one they are, and then you you deal with them appropriately. You know the you just every student's an individual, and so every student's going to have a individual need when it comes. It, it, it may be horsemanship, it may be on the forge, it may be in the book. But whatever it is, you, you figure out where that student, first of all, you figure out what that student needs more than others, and then you figure out how to reach that student. So we, we show them, we talk about it, we have them read about it, we, we uh, uh, do a lot of hands-on. So we, we try to hit them from every, every side of it. Yeah, I imagine that's the tough part is we all learn differently. Some are hands-on, some are visual, some maybe learn a little by, by listening or by failing and uh, trying to identify that has, has to be the real challenge. How I know everybody's different, but, you know, early on in a, when you start a new block, how long does it take you to, to identify what, what type of student? Uh, oh, by the end of the first week, we have a pretty good idea. And, and I'm, I'm so blessed because I have uh, Kelly and Cody that are pretty much full-time with the students. But then I also have uh, Cody's wife, Kirsty, my daughter, Jacqueline, and her husband, Cameron. So there's there's really six of us with 24 students. So on uh, on big days or any special needs, we can we can focus on some of that. It's really cool. Talk about that. I'm sure there will be maybe somebody listening that, that wants to be a farrier. You know, I know week one's going to be different from week eight, but what could they expect at Heartland? The first couple days, we call them death by fire. And uh, we have them forging. They're making mainly making horseshoe sandwiches, which is taking two old shoes, forging them into a billet or a bar, and learning how to use the fire, learning how to weld, learning how to forge. Um, they're going to get some blisters. They're going to be bleeding. But we also cover anatomy during those first two days. So it's not all the anatomy, but it's enough anatomy that by the time they touch a horse on Thursday, they're uh, very appreciative of the anatomy on the inside of that horse. So the first two days are death by fire. Wednesday, we will work on some dead feet and do a dissection. And then Thursday, they are under live horses and doing trims. And uh, Friday, then we start doing some nailing. So that first week is, uh, is a very high-speed week with a, you know, we're throwing so much at them that they don't, even, they don't even know what to study. Should I study my anatomy? Should I be working in the forge? Oh my goodness! I got to worry about these horses, so it, it becomes pretty intense that first week. And then the second week, we we go to the field Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Wednesday, we stay at the shop and horses come in, but they are under horses virtually every day after that. Now, one thing about the Heartland, we don't we don't advertise very much. We have some stuff on Facebook and YouTube, but we don't have any like print ads or any of that sort of stuff. What we found, if somebody doesn't belong here, they probably shouldn't come. This school is extremely hard. Uh, it, it's 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 great, and everybody loves it. And we have a great time, but we work extremely hard. Uh, we don't allow slacking. If you if you're lazy, this really is not the school for you. If you're a quitter, this is not the school for you. So so we we cater to a very high level of individual. 
I found out early on in my career, if you teach an idiot how to shoe a horse, when you're done, he's maybe going to be able to shoe a horse, but he's still an idiot. <laughs> but if you have a high-quality person, then you get to spend you know, six months with a really dynamic, high-quality person that uh, now you've turned into a farrier as well. And it, it just has made our our jobs so much easier by trying to attract a a very high level of student. So you you start looking through my student body, and by and large, these people were very successful at whatever they've done. If it was just coming out of high school, well, you know, they were the kind of person that was the football team captain or the the student president. Um, if they're 30 years old, well, they've already had a really good career, you know, doing whatever. It's 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 amazing how how good it is, how, how great it's been to have such a good student body. It yeah. makes our job way easier. So how do you attract students and, and do you try to weed some out? Like, do you get a, have a process where you analyze uh, applicants? No, it's, it's first come, first served. Virtually everybody that comes here comes from another farrier. Um, there'll be, uh, you know, we get a lot of farriers' kids. Um, we also get a lot of people who have worked with another farrier and, and they said, you got to come here. And we turn away a tremendous number of students. So that's been, it, it's worked really well. The the people that sign up six, eight months ahead of time, they know what they want. They they figured out how they're going to get it. And they're, they're really keen type people. Um, and, and we do turn away so many because we fill up so soon. It, it, you know, another thing that's really neat about our deal is that we are only open for six months. So mm. by the time a class is, is ready to start, we're excited. We can't wait for them to get here. We're, we're still gung-ho even after 20-some years of doing this. I can't wait for a class to start. Where if you run year-round, you start to get a little bit burned out. You're a little bit – you're needing some time off. And, and we, we have that scheduled into our program. Did you recognize that early on, that need to, to kind of create some distance, or oh, yeah. or was that a mistake you yeah. made? No, no. In the in Colorado, I was a, a full-time employee. They got two weeks off a year, and after doing it for three years, I almost didn't even want to shoe horses. I was completely burned out. And then we started Heartland, and uh, we had these big gaps in schedule, not because we wanted them, but because we just didn't have the students. Starting a school is way harder than starting a shoeing business, I promise. It's just uh, trying to attract these students in the early days when you don't have a name and nobody knows you and nobody's heard of you. It's, uh, it, it was very, the first five years were, were uh, rocky to say the least. But once you turn the corner, once you, once you start generating students based on the fact that you turn out so many good students, then, then it's, you know, it's, it, it just, it kind of, the motor just keeps kind of feeding itself. Yeah, and I think burnout is a it's a tough thing on the shoeing side too, um, and it's uh, something that that can plague a lot of shoers. It's you know being a farrier is definitely a lifestyle. But uh, what advice do you have from that of of avoiding burnout? Certification, certification, clinics, and contests. If you will give yourself a goal, make yourself uh, a goal of getting your your fit certified farrier, certified professional farrier, or your certified journeyman, or whatever, whatever you want to go after, that gives you a, a goal and makes you look at how you're shooting horses a little bit differently. And then if you go to clinics, you you maybe learn one little trick that makes your job easier next week, and that's that's very fun and 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 neat to do. 
a contest and now you're rubbing elbows with people that are like-minded and doing the same thing you're doing, that's how you avoid burnout as revenue sewer. And also, it wouldn't hurt you to schedule time in such a way. All right, so when I teach a business class, I I tell them how to run their business the way I I did the school, is you start with a number. And so from a horseshoe perspective, let's say you wanted to make $100,000 a year. That's your number. If you can charge $100 to shoe a horse, that means you need to shoe a thousand horses in a year to gross a hundred thousand. So if you work fifty weeks a year, that's only twenty horses a week. And so you have a part-time job to make a hundred thousand dollars. It sounds really simple and it's pretty straightforward. So if you do that as a horseshoer, you say I want to make a hundred thousand um, dollars. If I had to do twenty horses a week, what if I did thirty horses a week for four weeks and then had a week or two off? You know, you could do whatever the math would be. I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but, but you could. Work hard for four weeks and have two weeks where you had a scheduled break, and there's nothing wrong with that. the The, the world is not about money. The world really is about lifestyle, and this job is one of those few jobs that will let you create a lifestyle around the job instead of having to make make everything about just trying to earn another dollar. Yeah. What, what advice do you have for that? That that's definitely a discipline to to make that time and think about how you want to structure your life and your career. That, that's my advice. Yeah. Start with a number. Just just work out your budget, decide what you have to make, and, and don't say what do I have to make to be happy because it's not about happiness. You're not going to be happy. The people that have to have money to be happy, once they have a million, they're, they're not happy until they get the next million. And, you know, what are you going to do with, with the extra $100,000 a year? You can't eat more. Do you really need to have another farm? You know, it's it's... It's uh, uh, you have to have enough money to survive. I'm 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 not I'm not saying that, but you don't have to have a hundred thousand dollars buried in the ground. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> it's just uh, and and horseshoers are bad about that. You just keep bending over and working as hard as you can to see how much money you can make. When in reality, you ought to maybe be thinking about how much money do I have to make, and how could I have a really nice lifestyle and make you know, make that money and still have a good lifestyle. You know, and there's another side to this, and you've talked to me about this numerous times, of structuring your business in a way so that you're working for the people you want to. And I always always uh, chuckled when you'd say you, you there's certain clients where you're going to raise the price on them until you like them. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Of We try to never say no with the word no, because no is rejection, and nobody wants to be rejected. Nobody wants to hear rejection but if you if you say no financially uh for instance if you don't want to shoot draft horses somebody calls with draft horses you say yes ma'am i'll be glad to do it it's 400 dollars a horse you did not say no you told her you would be glad to do it and then she can decide whether or not she's going to pay you 400 dollars. if she pays you 400 dollars to shoot a draft horse you're like well you know that's cool i can shoot a draft horse for 400 bucks and you're happy <laughs> and she gets the job done, so everybody wins. But if you say no, she will never call again. You'll, you'll never, you'll never get another chance to to get a shot at that. So, we we say no to a lot of people that want to come here just because we don't have room, and I hate it. Uh, uh, but I can't, I can't legitimately take a student. Let's say I have a student coming in next year for the journeyman program, and uh, I fill up my spots. And somebody calls and they say, all right, well, instead of $18,000, i will be $25,000. So now this guy says yes, 
So I can't call one of the students I already told could have a spot and say, oh, by the way, <laughs> uh, there's, there's going to be another seven grand or, you know, you need to find another school. So so I have to say no, even though I preach never say no. Um, if, if I do say no in other ways, then I do it financially. Okay. Uh, going back to something you mentioned, and I, I'm not sure how well the listeners will understand it, uh, the FITS exam. Can you talk about the, the FITS program? Yeah, the the FITS program is the Ferrier's International Testing System, and so it's a really, really nice thing for some of the other countries that didn't have a certification in place or that wanted to have a, uh, a certification that was a little bit more in line with uh, kind of the worshipful company or the AFA. Um, so it's a it's an exam that it started in Brazil. I wrote the exam for the folks in Brazil, and then I had done some stuff in South Africa, and they asked me to write an exam. And I said, well, I just did for Brazil. How's that sound? And Brazil didn't mind me using it for South Africa. And that's when it became the, the fits. And so now we've done it We've done it in a lot of places. It's really taken off in Australia. Uh, we've done it in Argentina. We've done it in Mexico. Um, it's, 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 really, it's really been a neat thing for us to, to get to take this to other countries and watch how people have just blossomed when it came to horseshoeing. All of a sudden these folks have a goal and they're they're learning more and their horses are getting better and their businesses are getting better. If, if you would have seen the, the barriers in some of these countries before the fits and then five years after it was introduced, their level is just a whole new level. Kind of what the AFA did for America. Uh, it, it's 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 been it's been an amazing part of my journey and something I've enjoyed very much. Yeah, through your work, you've traveled to six different continents and to do uh, ferry, either as a clinician or shoeing horses. Uh, what strikes you when you go? You know, I think we're aware of, like, say, England and the reputation of a place like that. What for some of these countries that we don't really get a chance to see a lot of their work? What what strikes you, or what what can you tell us about it? You know, the, the, the top guys are are doing the same job kind of around the world. You you go with the top guy and you know, you go with the top guy in New Zealand and he's shooting a lot like the top guy in England who's shooting a lot like the top guy in Denmark. You know, it's a, it's just the top guys are trimming feet, they're fitting pretty much a perimeter, they are making front shoes look like front coffin bones, hind shoes look like hind coffin bones, they're not big into gadgets and they're hot shoeing. But then the lower-level guys, depending on the country, the lower-level guys can really be susceptible to to gimmicks and advertising and and uh, putting some strange stuff on horses' feet. Um, and and I think it's the same here. It's just it's just the more you know, the more you understand that this is a pretty basic, pretty straightforward job that is based on anatomy. If it doesn't make sense anatomically, it probably doesn't make sense. And just because you can put it on a foot doesn't mean you should put it on a foot. Uh, so that's what I find. I find the top guys are the top guys. Most of them are doing work very similar to each other across the world. You're going back to gimmicks and, and the, that relationship, if it doesn't make sense anatomically, is that is that the separator for you of, of you know, because we want to have innovation, we want to have new ideas, but then... Yeah, there's a lot of gimmicks in the industry. What what separates, well, this is a unique idea. This may have lasting power, and boy, that's a fad. That's a gimmick. It, it really does come down to the anatomy. So anatomically, 
anatomically there are some uh, truisms, I guess, or some some things that that really make sense or don't. For instance, um, the coffin bone is shaped pretty much like the front or, or like the foot, and a front coffin bone looks like a front foot. And if you put a square shoe on that, then you're more or less making a square hole around a round peg, and it, it anatomically it doesn't make sense. So people say, well, we're going to ease breakover, which is going to make it easier for the horse with a rocker toe or a square toe or a backed up toe. But in reality, ease breakover is not not necessarily a great thing. I mean, how many people do you know that get their, their toes removed so they can ease breakover? <laughs> and you wouldn't do that to yourself, but it would sure ease your breakover. Um, so the horse needs that, that toe in front of him to give him purchase, to give him a way to propel himself, to, to give him the appropriate amount of material for him to do the job that he's wanting to do but from a physics point of view and architecturally you can make it sound like a really good idea to take all that toe away and it leads to some some problems that people don't even realize you have horses that can't perform you have horses that get sore in other areas because now their foot is loading improperly um i don't know it just anatomically anatomy is not well enough understood in our industry you have a lot of guys that are applying things they don't understand. Yeah, okay. So that's that's so, where I stand on okay. it, I guess. So we have we have an industry of of you know people who are out there working and uh, what advice do you have if maybe there's some shortcomings in someone's anatomical knowledge to, to go back and, and learn? Oh, you study. I mean there's videos on it. We have a DVD on a dissection, Cody Cody's anatomy is unbelievable. He does clinics all over the place, the whole horse dissections. Um, the textbook has a lot in it. Farrier Journal's got articles on anatomy all the time. So so there's there's a lot of resources out there if you want to learn your anatomy, but but uh, you have to you have to okay, in this industry you don't have to be that competent to make a living and you don't have to know your anatomy to, to shoe a horse and get hired to shoe a horse. So as a result, you have a lot of people that are doing a job that they don't truly understand. And um, you have to be self-motivated and kind of a self-starter to make yourself go out there and learn anatomy if you don't have to know the anatomy. But if you do know the anatomy, then you can start making smart decisions and decide whether or not a gimmick makes sense or not. But it, but it has to come back to anatomy. Anatomy is the key element that a, that a farrier needs to understand to decide whether or not to apply, a, you know, a, a shoeing strategy. Okay. Okay. And we we talked about fits. Another uh, relationship you have is with the Worshipful Company of Farriers. You hosted the first exam in the United States for the Worshipful Company, and uh, you also earned your fellowship of the Worshipful Company of Farriers at a, a very young age, 30, I think. Can you talk a little bit about that, about your fellowship and, you know, the aspects of that and what your research project was on? Yes, sir. Um, that was back in a time before the Internet was very powerful. So that was uh, 98 was when I got my fellowship. And so there wasn't a whole lot of information out there about it. And there wasn't a lot of a lot of things you had to be, you know, there was no PowerPoint and I, I wrote my, my thesis on a typewriter instead of a computer. So it was a different era. My research project was on shoe and rodeo horses, which was recommended by my, my mentors. And looking back, it was kind of a bad idea because they didn't know enough about rodeo horses to really have the discussion with me. 
um, which, uh, looking back, if I would have written, you know, maybe just more about breakover or maybe more about uh, traction or something like that, it would have been a better thesis. Uh, I did become an examiner with the Whistle Company, and I did that for five years. And then and several of the Whistle Company examiners were doing some of the fifth exams with me, like in Australia or Brazil. And then the Worshipful Company decided that they would like for their examiners to only be uh, Worshipful Company examiners. So we had to make a decision whether we were going to do the FITS exams or the Worshipful Company exams or the AFA exams as an examiner. And um, I decided to stay with the FITS. And I'm also an examiner for the therapeutic endorsement for the American Farrier Association. So because of those relationships with FITS and with the uh, higher level AFA exams, I uh, went ahead and, and resigned as a, uh, a worship company examiner. But, you know, they, they've got a lot of tradition, and they're, uh, they're a great, great testing body in our industry. Um, they really kind of hold the standard in the world, and the FITS has been a very good feeder for them. It's, it's given guys uh, a chance to practice exams in the worship company kind of way. There's an oral exam. The examiners are in a white coat. It's a, it's it's more like an AFA or it's more like a worship company exam than it is like an AFA exam. Whenever we do a FITS exam. Okay. So you know FITS, the AFA certification, and worshipful company. Uh, for those people who are looking, you know, to to improve their skill set to get ready for an examination. Uh, you know, there may be different standards, different things they're each looking at. What advice in general do you have for getting ready? Well, competitions are amazing for your practical skills. Uh, competitions, not only are you doing uh, interesting forgings, but you're also doing them in a time limit and being looked at by a judge. So that that is a perfect way to prepare for the practical side of an exam. And then for the theoretical side, uh, we do have some clinics and we have some advanced classes. Um, you can you can host the advanced class and get somebody who's an examiner to come in and, and help you with that. But you do need to sit through some oral exams. You do need to take some written exams that are given in a way that they're given for these different associations, uh, so that you can you can practice that and so you can get some feedback on it. And there's there's quite a few resources. You know, there's several people out there that are are doing. Uh, even some online stuff where you can get some online help for doing written exams. But there's nothing like sitting through an oral exam or whenever you have an examiner trying to chase you down a rabbit hole. It's, uh, it's really, really good for your, your knowledge, and it helps you put your ideas together in a way that you can answer directly without painting yourself into a corner. Yeah, do you find, is there an issue or things you've come across uh, when you've been sort of on the administrative side of, of the exam, and is it not answering the question that was asked, or, or is it all over the map? It's all over the map, and you get people that are taking exams that don't have enough knowledge. It's like, a lot of times, especially especially the first time you host a FITS exam in another country, you'll have guys that have the practical skills. They can trim feet, and they can make shoes, and they can... They can really do that side of it, but they don't have the theoretical knowledge to sit through an oral exam. And so you get them in that situation, and all of a sudden it's it's very difficult for them to articulate. You know, maybe they've been shooing it this way because that's how they were taught, or tradition tells them that they should be putting this type of shoe on. 
but they don't understand the mechanics of it. They don't understand the uh, patholog- pathological theory behind it. They don't understand the anatomy. So, so that is, around the world, that is where horseshoers suffer the most. So, so you talked about earlier, it's very much a family business, and it's, it's hard to think of you and not think of Kelly and, and certainly Cody. Talk about that a little bit, about the, you know, the, the relationship you have with your family and, and how integral it is to, to the school, not just from having people there you know, as instructors, but I have to imagine that's, that's one of the more enriching things for your life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, our, our grandbabies get to come in, uh, come in to work all the time. So, so here we got our grandbabies running around while we're working with students. Same thing that our kids did. So Cody and Jacqueline never got to go to a babysitter. They were always at work. They were always with us shoeing. And uh, as a result, they grew up They grew up in this industry and in this world, and, and they like it well enough that they're still in it. Um, I don't know, Jeremy. A family business is not for everybody. Uh, and you've got you to remember when something happens in the business that it's very much secondary to, to your family relationship. So you might have got irritated with a worker in a way that you can't get irritated with your family member because family is first and business is second. Uh, if you can keep that to the front of your mind, then you can make it work. And I think where people say, well, I'm the boss, this is how we run the business, and then I'll be your, I'll be your wife, dad, brother, whatever later, that's a very hard way to do it. I think you, your, your dad, wife, brother, whatever now, if, if the business gets between you and your family, then it's not worth running the business together. It really is not. Similar to that is is the problem a lot of horseshoers have of kind of like what we talked about earlier. It's horseshoeing may not be the family business, but but I think the demands and as you put earlier, you have to make structure your business in a certain way to not let it interrupt your life. Um, but that's kind of the other side of it is is maybe those the family doesn't understand the business, so there's there's somewhat of a benefit for you in the way uh, you have oh. the school more than somewhat it's it's a huge benefit it, it makes it a lot easier if your spouse is also doing your job i think uh, some people can't work with their spouses um you know I, I i married somebody i want to spend time with and that that makes it really really nice for us and i raise kids that i want to be around and that also makes it nice for us so i i i don't know what to tell you i've just been incredibly blessed and, you know, now Cody and I have signed on with GE Forge, and we're going to be doing a whole bunch of tours. Well, we're going to be doing a whole bunch of clinics on a clinic tour together, and that's going to be very exciting. We're going to fly our own plane as much as we can and uh, uh, go do clinics at these different shoe supplies for a company that is, you know, the pinnacle of the industry. So we, we just, we, we're really, really blessed. We have a great life. Yeah, and that, that was a question I wanted to get to is the, the Goodwill Tour. Uh, GE, I think one of the great, great companies in horseshoeing and, and another great family business. Talk, talk about the back, because I, you know, there's a lot of good ideas out there for clinics, but, but uh, this is the first really new idea of I, I've heard in a while. Well, you know, I've been with Musthead for a long, long time, and they're kind of moving away from doing the clinics like they used to. And uh, GE, um, I've been friends with Bob Gardner. I, I knew Beth before Bob. And then I've been friends with Josh since he's come on board. Josh has 
come out here to the heartland several times and um they were in a position where they wanted to to do something new and cody and i were in a position where it just it seemed like it all was going to fit and this uh this goodwill tour is getting a lot of uh well is getting a lot of interest I, from what i understand from josh he's getting a lot of calls about it and the suppliers are quite excited and uh, Cody and I, um, we have a plane, and, and we're both pilots, and we're hoping that we can fly to some of these clinics and, and kind of make a little story out of it. So, I don't know. It's it, it's keeping the industry fresh for me, and it, it, it's it's a it's a fresh idea that we've come up with this year that uh, I'm very excited about. I can't wait to get started. We have one coming up in about three weeks in Texas. Yeah, and uh, the, there's a lot of other destinations, Ocala, uh, uh, Anvil Brand. So I, I think if anybody wants to find these dates, uh, where, where can they go? They certainly can come to AmericanFarriers.com. Uh, uh, yeah, they, they're going to put a they put an uh, ad in one of your, in, yes. in your magazines, from what I understand. Yep. And uh, they can find it on my Facebook or they can get a hold of GE. But um, I think we have I think we have six that we're going to. So we're going to Ocala for Visby. We're going to um, Texas Ferry Supply. We're going to Meters. We're going to uh, Oleo Acres, uh, Amble Brand that you've already mentioned. The Stockhoffs in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mm. Like I said, I think it's one of the the more unique uh, clinic ideas I've heard in, in a long time. Yeah, we're excited. Yeah. Uh, you know, you talked about the family aspect, and you enjoy the time with the family. You have to do that, and you know, it's it's. Uh, I've known you for about eleven years now, and and I think Cody was was certainly a, a teenager back then. Uh, to see him come to this a point in his career of uh, the level he's reached, you know, the dissections of being a clinician himself, uh, instructor, uh, you know. Uh, how do you feel about that? You know, you, you're immensely proud. You have to imagine. Well, well, Cody was an unusual kid that he he was willing to work as hard as he had to to achieve his goals. So, you know, he got his dream when he was 15. Um, he was captain of the World Championship team that won the, the World Championships in Calgary. He won the Cape World Cup. He's been on the first team. He's been the national champion to the WCB. So he's achieved a lot of goals in the ferry industry. He got his AWCF when he was 19. Um, so he's a, he's a very rare horseshoer. Um, he was able to train his eye at such a young age that he sees things that I just, I just absolutely can't see. Uh, he has, he has abilities that, um, man, when you get to work with Cody, you just, you don't realize what a rare talent he is until you get to, to work with him a little bit. So he decided to go ahead and start pursuing his anatomy, and now he he did a whole horse dissection for the AFA convention. He's doing a bunch of clinics with whole horse dissections, but he he left me so far behind in anatomy. I'm I'm okay in the foot, and the lower leg, and you know tendons, ligaments, and stuff. But now he can talk to you about all the muscle groups, and, you know every joint in, in in a way that I can't. It's, it's been incredible to watch him come along. He's just uh, he's just taken everything that I did and done it better. And it's, it's very, it makes us very proud and happy to see. We've done the World Classic together, and I think we're, we're talking about doing it again next year together, but um, we have not been on an organized, and we can't really be on an organized uh, 
team together because the school kind of demands um, the time of one of us. So for us to both be gone to all the commitments that it takes to be on a team, would it wouldn't really be that possible for the school. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, the school's structured with uh, operating six months. What do you do uh, in your time in between sessions? Well, we have a farm with, you know, several hundred acres. We have uh, cows. We have our own personal shoeing business. Um, do a lot of clinics all over the place. So that demands a lot of travel. Um, so yeah, we just, we, we, we go from during the class, during the school year, we, we work in 60, 70 hour weeks. And then in the off season, we get to work, you know, 30 to 40 hour week. <laughs> you get to work the normal, the idea of what a normal yeah. work week is. <laughs> right, right, right. But we have, we have a lot of little things happening in, you know, in, in, in several different, uh, areas. So there's always, there's always, always something to do. Yeah. So let me put you on the spot. Uh, you know, as an educator, you you know, I, I've heard, you know, being a teacher is, is so powerful to, to learning, um, you know, and, and I look back through a lot of articles and see a lot of tremendous advice through the years. What, what's something you've learned somewhat recently that, you know, that, that you could share with the listeners? What have I learned recently? Yeah, right now I've been really studying my, my piloting, so I'm working on my instrument rating. And so I've learned a lot of stuff that have nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm learning how to do instrument approaches and land the localizer frequencies and uh, understand the weather, you know, stuff like that. So um, one thing I've always loved learning and once I learn one thing, then I start learning the next. And um, so for a while, I was doing tattooing, and I really enjoyed that. But my my eyesight at that at that reading distance started getting bad at about 47 years old, and so that took some of the fun out of tattooing. So now I am uh, um, been studying Spanish. My Spanish is getting fairly fluent. Uh, doing some Spanish videos for YouTube and um, working on my my instrument and commercial rating for piloting. You know, that's a good, a good point to make. I think if, you, if you're struggling out there, if you're looking for either for some motivation or lessons, get on YouTube because you'll find a lot of videos by Chris and certainly other farriers. But I know you're, you've been quite profound on through the years. You were kind of an early adapter of, of getting foot care information out there on the web. Yeah, there's a lot, of, but there's so many guys that have eclipsed me um, it's uh, there's there's a lot a lot of information out there. We have we have some how-to videos, but it's not nearly like uh, like some of the other guys. I need to do more of it. It's it's a it's a time-consuming, tough deal to get enough time to do them. Actually, yeah, especially finding time in the the day that's you know the or the week that's already taking seventy hours. Um, yeah, yeah. I shot uh, three Spanish videos on Sunday. Yeah. So hopefully they'll be they'll be coming up soon. One of the coolest things we've started doing this year is uh, we've actually hired a dedicated cameraman, and he's a graduate, so he's also a farrier and he knows all about the business, which is a hard guy to find. It's hard to find somebody that can shoot the stuff, edit the stuff, and make it look horseshoe and approved. Um, but we're uh, we've been shooting this reality TV show called Hammered, 
that is reality TV show with no manufactured drama, and it is just life in the heartland. And uh, so Hammered comes out every Sunday night at 6 on the YouTube channel, and that's been a really, really neat addition to what we've been doing around here. Yeah, and you mentioned the YouTube channel. What what should people look for? They go to YouTube.com, and, and uh, what, what should they search for if they want to watch? They can search um, Heartland Horseshoeing School. The channel is actually called D.C.L. Gregory because I named it uh, many years ago before I understood anything about YouTube. <laughs> um, and then also I have another channel called Escuela de Raje, and uh, it is my Spanish language YouTube channel where I've been doing some videos for the Latin American market. And um, again, the guy that we have hired, his name is Jake Krause. We call him Dr. Love. Uh, <laughs> he's the guy who's been doing all the video work for us and just doing a fantastic job. Yeah. All right. So here you are. You know, it's uh, been a long, long time since being in that tent on Danny Ward's property. Uh, you know, you got the Goodwill tour. It's going on now. Where do you want to go with this? What What do you see for your future? You know, we had a program where we could be retired, but we really like our job. So I I just see that we keep on keep on doing it. Um, uh, we still shoe horses. We still love teaching it, and so I, I don't see an end in sight. Probably, unfortunately, from for Cody, um, I'm going to be the doddering old fool in the corner of the shop, and he's telling me to go count nails or something. You know, I just, I don't know. We, we don't want to retire. We really love what we do, yeah. and so I, I think that's what we're going to keep doing, Jeremy. Yeah, it doesn't sound like there's much difference after all from from those early days. You know, your your accommodations certainly have improved from that tent, but but the passion's <laughs> still there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I cannot imagine me anywhere else. I mean, I really I feel like I am where I'm supposed to be. So I think that uh, I think that's probably where we'll stay. I'd like to thank Chris for sharing his story with us. And I'd also like to thank GE Forge and Tool for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to sign up through your favorite music service to get our podcast sent right to your phone, tablet, or computer automatically. This is a great way to make sure you have the entire history of this podcast. And listening to these episodes is a great way to break up that drive time in between shoeing appointments. Until next time, thank you for listening.